0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Matt. I want to add my welcome and greeting. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I want to encourage you as Matt has prayed and requested that you would be made available and accessible to the movement, the the teaching of the Holy Spirit through His Word here among His people. I'm looking around this morning and I'm thinking that the vast majority of you are probably old enough to remember a cultural phenomenon that took place in our nation not too many years ago where a game show that came on in the evenings actually sort of captivated our entire Culture and country. It was, who wants to be a millionaire? Because the implied answer was, well, gosh, dummy, everybody. Everybody wants to be a millionaire. And it would start off with this very intrusive, short Jewish man asking you some very easy questions, which gave you a, sh- a false sense of hope and intellect that usually by question four, you realized, I must be a complete troglodyte. I have no idea what he's talking about anymore. But the thing that I think got everyone's attention, whether they knew it, expressly or explicitly or not is that he would ask someone a question and they would answer with such confidence and then he would always say you know his standard stick is that your final answer and there's something about this four foot seven jewish man asking you that question that would put you on your heels like i thought i knew until you asked me is that my final answer and now i Gosh, I don't know. Is that your final answer? And you would see people waffle and sort of flip back and forth and teeter-totter and lose all confidence, and they would change their answer, and they would get it wrong, and he would just chuckle, and his whole day would have been made, right? Well, that occurs to me as I've been thinking through, planning for, preparing for this morning's message. Every now and then here at the downtown campus, whether at the Foundry, as we're just having conversations with people, or as we're interviewing potential employees to be baristas, or sometimes even interviewing people for uh, the office of deacon, or ministry leader, or elder, or for membership, I'll just say vaguely, hey, tell me about your faith background. And I'll say, what do you you, you mean? i said, just tell me about your faith background. And they'll say things like, well, uh, my parents took me to church, went to Sunday school. I uh, went to vacation Bible school. I uh, got baptized. I uh, take communion. I went to summer camp. And uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And depending on the person, uh, I'll sometimes smile and go, is that your final answer? Huh? That's your faith background. That's your final answer. And at that point, it gets real, the cheeks flush, and they go, no, no, I mean, I mean you know, Jesus, and like the cross, and he died, and I didn't, and he, Jesus, Lord, Savior, what, what do you want me to say? I'm like, no, no, that's fine, I just, I just wanna know, is, is that your faith background, that's it? So he had, no, no, I, Jesus is my Lord, he's my Savior, and I love him. Okay, great, but very, very often, I'll ask someone, tell me about your faith background, and they'll say, no, no, that's, that's pretty much it, church, VBS, Sunday school. Baptized, communion, that response is way more common, even in the culture and the context of East Texas, than you might imagine. And it's shockingly unhelpful to the person. You can see it on their face. They're like, I, I, I don't really know. I think I'm supposed to say this, but I certainly don't want to get this wrong. I'm not real sure. Well, every single person in this room either is that person or you know many people just like that. And so this morning's message could not be more pertinent and more prescient for every single one of us. What we're going to learn this morning in the book of Romans chapter 2, it's our big idea for the morning, it goes like this. Righteousness is not reached through a religious resume. Righteousness is not reached through a religious resume. It's fascinating how many times, how often people will begin to recite and to recount their religious resume and as they're doing so, realizing that it's not enough. But what else are they supposed to say? Because that's how every human religion on the surface of the earth operates. It's about what you can do, what you can accomplish, what you can obtain, what you can earn. So they begin to recount their religious resume, but righteousness is never reached through a religious resume. Paul's going to undo that in the book of Romans. I want to remind you that the book of Romans is itself a microcosm of the entire Bible and our overarching umbrella theme for the book of Romans goes like this. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's going to say throughout the book of Romans because that's what God is saying throughout the entirety of the Bible. So I'm going to begin reading in Romans 2. We're going to start in verse 17. I'll read from 17 to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself, while you preach against stealing, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not for man but from God. This is God's word. And what a word it is this morning. Again, we have to remember the context and the occasion of what Paul is writing. I read many articles, commentaries this week that were accusing the Apostle Paul of being anti-Semitic. That is that Paul hates the Jews or Paul hates the Jewish people or Paul hates Israel. And nothing could be farther from the truth absolutely not Paul is not anti-semitic Paul is himself a Jewish man he is a Pharisee of Pharisees he studied at the feet of Gamaliel the greatest rabbi in Jewish history in fact he will write later in this very same book in chapter 9 verse 3 that he would rather himself be accursed by God and condemned by God if it meant that his countrymen the Jews could come to saving faith and then he says and I mean it I am not lying brothers He loved the Jewish people so much that he was willing to himself be accursed or condemned. Now, we have to understand that the point of Paul's writing this is not anti-Semitic. He's trying to convey a truth. And we have to know that, or we could run the risk of dangerously misapplying, misinterpreting this text. Near the end of his life, Martin Luther was very unhealthy. He had a number of physical maladies that all began to attack his mind. And he was not thinking clearly. He suffered greatly from dementia and all sorts of mental issues. So much so that he began to write some very harsh, critical, condemning materials of the Jewish people. He would blame them for all sorts of things that they had nothing to do with. And he based a lot of it on Romans 2. He would, I'm sure today, regret that greatly, but he was not well mentally, and he wrote some scathing materials, very harsh about the Jewish people, not widely published, but it was published enough in Germany, so that 400 years later, a German man, or an Austrian man, sits in a jail cell, reading these notes, takes that material, and himself writes his own manifesto called Mein Kampf, I'm talking about Adolf Hitler, who formed the philosophical underpinnings of the Nazi regime based on ultimately a misinterpretation, misapplication of Romans 2. So what's going on here? Why does Paul seemingly lambaste the Jewish people in the second half of Romans chapter two? Well, like all scripture, Romans is a book written by a person to some people in a place at a period for a purpose. And the job, the discipline of Bible exposition is to uncover all of that information. That's how we begin to understand God's Word. It is a person who wrote to some people at a period in a place for a purpose. We don't get to just say, well, it says here, therefore, I think it means. No, 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 it doesn't matter what it means to you until you know what it meant to Paul. It absolutely meant a thing to Paul and he intended it to mean a thing to his readers. So that's what we have to discern and understand. Now remember, this exists in context. There is no meaning apart from context. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul is responding to an accusation that had said, you don't want to come to Rome, you're afraid, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God, it is the righteousness of God revealed because the wrath of God is being revealed. I am eager to preach the gospel to you because you are a group of churches that were not founded with apostolic underpinnings, I am eager to get there and to give you the fully orbed, fully baked gospel. What is the gospel? We say it all the time. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. But it's not really all that good news unless you understand how bad the situation is all around you. If things are marginally good and you get some good news, meh, no big whoop. But if you're hanging by a thread about to die for your eternal soul and then you get some good news, it's very good indeed. And so Paul is turning down the lights. He is dimming the atmosphere to show them just how dark this actually is so that the gospel will be seen as more beautiful, more brilliant, more good, more glorious. Now Paul has focused down his intensity of his gaze. He started at the end of chapter 1 just talking about the rampant wickedness and sin that exists in the world among the pagans, among everybody in chapter 2 the first half of the chapter he begins to address those who believe and assume that they have some sort of moral high ground because of their ethnicity because of their class because of their religion because of their heritage because of their upbringing and he says there is no such thing as moral high ground sin is way worse than we think it is and it permeates and infects everything now paul's going to really focus in on a specific issue that's happening in these churches. It is immediately talking about the Jewish people that are in the churches in Rome. Under Emperor Claudius, the Jews are expelled. But then Claudius dies, Emperor Nero comes in, and Nero allows the Jews to come back in. So these churches are predominantly Gentile, but there are some Jews who have returned. Paul wants to address what's going on with these people. Now, Paul, by this time that he writes this, it's Acts 18. You might want to make a little note in your Bible there. This all is written during Acts 18 while Paul is sitting in Corinth. He's already been on a number of missionary journeys. He's gone to many different towns and he's gone into the synagogues. And every time he goes into a synagogue on the first Sabbath, he preaches the Old Testament law and he talks about the coming of Messiah. And they love it. They like it. It's exciting. It's encouraging. They want to hear more. And so they will bring him back on a second Sabbath. And inevitably, Paul will say, yes, the one I talked to you about, the Messiah, he has come. He's real. He's a person. I know you didn't see him here in Pisidian Antioch. I know you didn't see him here in Corinth. But he is real. He has come. But our people, brothers, our people rejected him. They cut him off. They killed him. They put him to death. And now... God has taken the Messiah and made him available. Well, oh, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. To the Gentiles. Oh. And when he said that, they would lose their minds. They would beat him with rods. They would flog him. They would stone him. They would beat him with their fists. They could not handle the fact that this Jewish Messiah Paul was preaching was being offered to the Gentiles. Why? Because he's being offered freely by grace to the Gentiles, to those who don't deserve it. And it threatened to invalidate their religious resumes. And they could not handle that. That's why they beat Paul and drove him from the city over and over again, from Berea, from Thessalonica, and over and over again, because he threatened their religious resume. What Paul wanted them to understand is that righteousness is not reached through a religious resume. We also have to remember here at the end of chapter 2 that Paul is still writing in the literary construct of diatribe. He's addressing these churches, creating an imaginary objector. Last week, we met him, we named him Murray. Because, you know, Murray, the imaginary Jewish objector in the churches of Rome. Who, someone who represents the position of opposition, not actually a specific person that Paul's writing to. And in this diatribe, Paul's going to hold up Murray, the great defender of two things. First, of pretense. Murray's going to be the defender of pretense, their assumed identity based on their privilege, their heritage, their genetics, their DNA, their family, who they were by birth. Also, their procedure, their outward signs and symbols that they relied on instead of their inward reality. They were relying on what they were trying to accomplish and what they were trying to earn. And both of those aspects, whether pretense or procedure, were aspects of human achievement in nature. And they always, every single time, result in hypocrisy. And as we're going to see, God really hates hypocrisy. Now, Paul's going to start off here in verse 17. He says, But if you call yourself a Jew, and that meant something. See, the Jews were a privileged people. We have an expression in our house. Hey, 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 hey! you were born on third base. When you begin to feel like you're just a little bit too awesome, my wife will remind me, hey, you were born on third base. Or we'll remind our kids, hey, 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 you were born on third base. You didn't earn this. You were given this. That brain in your head that knows how to function, you were given that by grace. You didn't earn or achieve or accomplish who you are, whose you are. You were born on third base. And Paul says you the Jewish people you are a privileged people you were born on third base oh I know they were the recipients of countless pogroms and persecutions and holocaust and all those things but that is precisely because they were God's favored people this nation that was created out of nothing from the womb of a barren woman married to a pagan idolatrous moon worshiper from Babylon I believe I'll create the light of the world from that that's a clever God And they were supposed to have been the light of the world. That was the idea. That was the intent. Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, now even that little expression is super instructive. That means that Jewishness is a label. It's an identifier. But it is not an intrinsic thing. That's really, really interesting. It's not a matter of genetic heritage. Because how much genetic Jewishness is enough? Well, my mother was 164th Jewish. My dad was 1512th Jewish. You mix them together, carry the one. I'm like, I don't know, I'm, I'm Jew. Where does it say that? How much Jewishness is enough? If you really want to lose your Jewish friends, ask them that question. Because of all of the harassments and persecutions and the horrible things that have been perpetrated against the Jewish people, there is no such thing as a purebred Jewish person ethnically anymore. They don't exist. So how much Jewishness genetically is enough? Paul's gonna tell us it's not anything to do with heritage or family system or genetics whatsoever. It is an internal reality. I know that that is very offensive to your and my Jewish friends. And so all I ever do, All I can do is point them to the Spirit-inspired words of a Jewish apostle who writes the words of Romans chapter 2. I didn't come up with this. It's not my idea. This is what the Spirit says through the apostle Paul. Take it up with him. I didn't write this. I didn't say that. I'm just telling you what it says. I'm telling you what Paul means. This passage is bookended with an entire premise. It starts in verse 17. Paul's going to bookend it in verse 29 when we get there here in just a moment. He says, if you call yourself a Jew... Well, the word Jew came from the Jewish tribe of Judah, which is in Hebrew, means praise Yahweh. That's what the name Judah means, praise Yahweh. If you call yourself a Jew, those who are the praise of Yahweh, that's going to mean something. And the Jewish people, generally speaking, thought of themselves as superior to the Gentiles. They were the ones who had been created out of nothing to be the instrument of God's righteousness in the world, the expression, the extension of his righteousness in the world. They were to have been the ones where Adam and Eve failed to spread Eden across the entire globe. It was supposed to have been Israel that was, in a sense, going to identify the whole world. They were going to show the world what the righteousness of God looks like lived out among an entire nation of people. How'd they do? The Hebrew is wah, wah, wah. Not so good. But that was their intent all along. They were to have been because of God's special revelation to them, because of his special relationship to them. Paul's going to give us a list of eight things broken into two sets of four, how they are a privileged special people. Beginning in verse 17 here, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, because of your reliance on the law, you have a special, unique, vertical relationship with God. Four things. Because of, you, uh, of your reliance on the law and you boast in God, you rightly and uniquely get to say to the rest of the world, there is a God, His name is Yahweh. And He is, it's His name, and we relate to Him, we know Him, He loves us. And that was true. They have a vertical relationship with God. Verse 18, and you know his will. You get to know the mind and the thoughts of God himself. No other people could claim that. And approve what is excellent. I love this expression. I wish we could get in a time machine because this forms a bookend that will not get resolved until chapter 12. Sometime in the year 2024, we'll be in chapter 12. That's a joke. Relax, people. Only will we get to resolve this chord in chapter 12 where he says you are the ones who get to approve what is excellent. You get to discern, you get to evaluate, you get to make spiritual decisions about what is excellent. The word is diaphero, dia through pharaoh, carried, that which is carried through. It's where we get our word for different, it comes from diaphero. What is excellent? What is right? What is eternal? What is it that gets brought through this temporal life into everlastingness? You are a Jewish mind. Because of the revelation and the relation with God, you get to decide what those things are. You get to approve what is excellent, what is different. Do you see? You boast in God, you know His will, you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. You have God's revealed instruction, the Torah, verse 19. And if you are sure because of those four things that you have this vertical relationship, it was supposed to have translated into a horizontal relationship with everybody around you. If you are sure that you are yourself a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children... Because of this vertical relation and revelation with God, there should have been a horizontal light of the worldness. Does this sound familiar? Where the immaculately conceived Son of God, Israel, is supposed to be the light of the world and bless the nations? That's Genesis 12. That's the promise. Israel, it was supposed to have been you. But we find out that it is not a nation, it's a person. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21 has Murray already saying, yes, 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 that's us. Go team. We have this unique relationship and revelation from God. Yes, we're the light of the world. Yes, we instruct the foolish. Yes, we bring light to the dark. Yes, we instruct children. Yes, we are the wise ones. Yes, yes, yes. And so Paul's got them. And in verse 21, he drops the H-bomb on them. No, no, not the hydrogen bomb, that would have been a lot easier on them. He drops the hypocrisy bomb on them. The trap is now set, verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You're supposed to be a light to the world, but you're you're not doing that. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Now, let me be very, very careful here. At the time that Paul writes this, the Jewish people were going through persecutions because of a reputation of irreputable business practices in Rome. That they were swindlers. Is that fair? No. Was every Jewish person doing that? No, of course not. But they were not highly thought of because of their business practices in those days. Verse 22, You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? By the way, the implied answer for all of these questions is yes, as we'll see in verse 24. Was every Jewish person an adulterer? No, but they had created ways of adultery. A man could simply say of his wife, she has dishonored me, and then he could write her a writ of certificate of divorce and do away with her and get himself a new one. Some of you guys are going, I was born 2,000 years too late. No, it doesn't work that way. God called that awful and adultery, and he hated it. That became the normative practice among the Jewish people in the Roman Empire at that time. You who abhor idols, or so you say, do you rob temples? What is going on there? Paul is quoting Malachi 3.8, where they were treating the altar of God in the temple like the garbage dump. They would take their worst animals from their flocks and their herds, and they would use those as their sacrifices, sort of a killing two birds with one stone you know, find the pigeon with one wing and no eyes and be like, yeah, that's good enough. Throw that thing on the altar. Hey, I got a lamb that's got two legs, no ears. Let's throw that thing on the altar and call it good. God says, you're treating me as if I'm not. You're treating me as if I'm like all the other alleged supposed false gods who are not paying attention, who don't care, who are weak, who are disinterested. That's not who I am. So Paul sets them up you who boast in the law dishonor god by breaking the law you claim to have this special relation that you are the light among the dim gentile nations but you are the ones who are dishonoring god verse 24 for as it is written the name of god is blasphemed among the gentiles because of you whoa i cannot make a big enough deal about this the What Paul says here in verse 24 is an absolute explosive canister of incendiary material. What he says, I know it doesn't offend us that much. It was grossly offensive to these people. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 52 verse 5. In Isaiah chapter 52, God is speaking out prophetically and judgmentally against the Assyrian empire. He says, you uncircumcised Assyrians... You who oppress my people Israel, I am blasphemed among the nations because of you, the Assyrians. Why? Because they were the most wicked, violent, debased people. They would find the pregnant women of Israel and they would put fish hooks through their cheeks and lead them away into exile. They would flay the soldiers alive. They were a horrifyingly violent, grotesque society and God says, I am despised you you are blaspheming me among the nations and so the apostle Paul says <clears throat> you who tried to build your own religious resume I'm quoting Isaiah 52:5. what was true of the Assyrians 750 years ago is true of you Paul essentially calls that sort of mindset you are an uncircumcised Assyrian yay how to make friends and influence people right Paul says, what was true of them is true of you. This is blasphemy. We don't understand blasphemy. We live in the 21st century in Western civilization. Blasphemy, big whoop, right? Oh, no, no, no. In the book of Leviticus, if you were found guilty of blasphemy, then the entire nation was to pick up rocks and throw them at you until you died. And there was no atonement. If you are found guilty of blasphemy, it was the ultimate offense and you had to die by stoning. What is blasphemy? Listen, blasphemy is the attempted ungodding of God. I know that's bad grammar. Stick with me. Blasphemy is the attempted or the articulated ungodding of God. It is attributing to God that which he is not, saying he is less than, making him look like, seem like all the other false gods, disinterested, distracted, weak, not very good, largely cantankerous and ornery. God says, I hate that. It's a big deal. I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you are accused of a crime. Not just a crime, but the most heinous, foul, offensive, despicable crime you can imagine. But it's not true. It's not true. But there is evidence that is beginning to stack and mount against you. This is going to go to trial, and you're going to lose your family because it's such an egregious accusation. You're going to lose your family. You've already lost your job. You're probably going to be defamed in the community. How do you feel? And what's worse, the people closest to you are beginning to think that it might just be true. And they're beginning to treat you and and behave around you like you're the kind of guy who actually would do something like that. We've seen this play out in our own house. When I see something is broken in my house and I accuse one son of it and he knows that it was the other one, Katie barred the door. Things get loud in a hurry. We don't want to bear false accusation. Paul says, when you who claim to have the law and to keep the law, when you behave like this with hypocrisy, It is blasphemy and God hates it. It is a false accusation of God. It is taking his name in vain. It is attributing to God's character that which is not and he hates it. It's not that you're just good people doing your best. Oh, no, no, no. Paul says, you are blasphemers. This is a massive assault and an indictment. It started back with John the Baptist in the beginnings of the Gospels. As the Pharisees approach him, he says, you brood of vipers, you are God-haters. Ugh, that's pretty harsh, John the Baptist, whoa. Not to be outdone, Jesus in the Gospel of John on Temple Mount stands on Temple Mount and tells the Jewish leaders, you are God-haters and your father is the devil. Ugh. And then Peter in the book of Acts, in his first two sermons in chapters two and three says, you are all God-haters and you murdered the author of life. And just to round it all out nicely here, Paul says, you, if you are trying to build your own religious resume, you are God-haters. You are like uncircumcised Assyrians. Are you beginning to pick up a theme that God kind of takes this seriously, that the book of Romans takes this seriously? They said, because we are Jews, this is our heritage. This is our genetic background. This is our pretense. And Paul says, actually, your pretense doesn't accomplish anything. Anything. Because again, the theme of this passage, righteousness is not reached through a religious resume. To continue it on, he's going to build on that in verse 25. For, so there's a connection here, because, thus, therefore, circumcision indeed is of value. If you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? This is weird. A whole lot of usage of the word circumcision i know stick with me then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law paul's gonna having just dealt with their pretense he's not gonna deal with their procedure because he knows that murray the imaginary objector is going yeah 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 yeah, but we're good because we're jews paul says that doesn't get you anything okay but hey but we're the circumcised ones paul says "Mm, let me let me speak to that for a moment Now, let me also say, the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's really important because I'm going to get emails from Stephanie Mazingo, who runs our children's ministry, that I'm about to descend into a whole bunch of yellow and orange words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But not really. Paul uses some very creative and clever plays on words here. He says, if you do this, in verse 25 again, verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, meaning fully, completely, totally, in thought, word, indeed. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Well, thank you, ESV, for that delightfully nice, sanitized translation. Paul uses a wordy dirt, okay? Paul says, if you who say that you keep the law, you are circumcised, but you break the law, your circumcision, your covenant symbology becomes Acrobustia, I know, I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry. Acrobustia, it's a technical term. It's the, uh, it's the clipped foreskin. Can we just go ahead and say that out there now? Derisively. The Jewish people used to call the Gentile people the Acrobustia. It was a crude, crass nickname. The Jewish people, who were supposed to be a light to the world, they would derisively ridicule the Gentiles and call them Acrobustia, the uncircumcision, the (coughs) cut-off part. That's how they viewed and what they would call the Gentiles. Paul says, if you who claim to be circumcised but don't keep the law, then you are actually, (coughs) you're the cut-off, clipped part. So just to make sure you're keeping score at home, Paul has now called them uncircumcised Assyrians and the clipped foreskin part. Usually at this point, we don't pass the plate and take up an offering and then have an altar call. Paul is not pulling any punches here. It's a really big deal. But he answers all these questions of the imaginary objector. But what about our procedure? Does it not accomplish something? Is it good for anything? Paul says, let me explain. The circumcision is nothing more than an outward shadow of an actual inward substance. It's like this. This is my wedding ring. This is not my marriage. This is not my union. This is not the covenant. This is the symbol of the substance. This is the shadow of that which is real. And Paul goes through all this example. If you who claim to be in covenant because of the circumcision, yet you break the law, the symbol that you carry around becomes a witness and a screaming testimony against your defilement. You claim to be a Jew, and you're circumcised, but you're breaking the law. It testifies against you. If I, who am in covenant matrimony, wear this run, and I am unfaithful to my wife, this becomes my condemnation. This becomes the prosecution against me. At the same time, Paul says, if I take this off, am I still married? Yes, of course I am. Of course I am. And if I remain pure and faithful to my wife and never step outside of my marriage in any way, thought, word, or deed, but I don't wear my ring, am I not faithful to it? Yes, I am. This is merely a symbol. And then he presses it just a little bit farther. He says, let's say that somebody who's not circumcised but does keep a law. let's put it this way, somebody who is called to a life of singleness, and they maintain purity and chastity, and they are adhere to God's perfect plan of celibacy in their life, then their life becomes a testimony and a witness against you who claim to be in marriage but are an adulterer. It's that serious and significant of a thing. This is merely a shadow, merely a symbol of the substance. Your procedure does nothing for you. Now this is a huge undoing of their whole world view. They thought their pretense, they thought their procedure earned for them righteousness. He says, actually, no, your procedure doesn't accomplish anything because righteousness is not reached through a religious resume. Brings us to these last two verses. This is utterly shocking. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That does not have to do with costume and dress. It has to do with externals like heritage, DNA, background, tradition, tribe. That's not what makes you a Jew. That's amazing. Paul says something astounding here. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. No, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, by the letter. Uh, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What's going on here? By this point, Murray's going, Whoa, 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 Paul, the imaginary objector says. If you're telling me it has nothing to do with my pretense, nothing to do with my procedure, that all I'm doing, my righteous resume is good for nothing, then who truly is an actual Jew? And Paul says, oh, I'm glad you asked. It's these people. Because in both Testaments, circumcision was always a matter of the heart. In Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, God says over and over again, I want you to circumcise your hearts. I want it to be an inward reality. I want it to be something that you are actually inclined to me, to love me because I love you. Outward circumcision, man, it's good. Why is outward circumcision good? Because it is a symbol of the substance. Why is it good for me to wear my ring? She likes it! It's a reminder to me that I am in covenant union. It is a reminder to everybody else that I am in covenant union. Circumcision is a value, but not unto salvation or eternal faithfulness found from God. No, it's good. That's all he says. It's, it's got value, sure. But it's not the thing. Who is truly a Jew? One who is Christ's. Has nothing to do with your heritage, with your genetic background, with your tradition. He drops this bombshell. A Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. And just to make sure that we're not thinking that Paul goes outside of what is actually true, Jesus himself, in a few years, will write a letter to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, and he will say the exact same thing to them. Those people who call themselves Jews but are not, they are a part of the synagogue of Satan, That's pretty strong, but it is Jesus saying it directly. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says a true Jew is one of the heart, one internally. And now finally, here's the bookend in verse 29 that started in verse 17. He says, His praise is not from man, but from God. It's a clever wordplay in Greek. He's sort of doing some Hebrew-Greek transliteration there. Remember the name Jew comes from praise Yahweh in Hebrew. Who is a true Jew? The one whose praise is not from man, but praise from Yahweh. That's a true Jew. Someone who has what God demands. True righteousness that is never reached through a religious resume. So in particular, Paul is addressing the Jewish mindset that would have existed in the churches in Rome. But make no mistake, this is applicable to any of the religious... Moral high ground, Protestant evangelicals even of our day. Anyone who thinks my religious resume attains for me righteousness, Paul says, is that your final answer? You sure about that? So let me just give you three quick principles to try to encapsulate this package down that hopefully will land on all of us. Number one, hopefully you've already heard this all message along, it goes like this. Your pretense does you no good. When I say your pretense, I don't mean that you are pretentious. I mean your pretense, the things that you assume that God is lucky to have from you. The things that you think make you who you are to have value. I, listen, please understand, your heritage, your background, your nationality, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your educational opportunities, your family system, all of those things are a part of God's predestinating grace that you don't deserve. You could have, maybe you should have been born in 4th century China, but you weren't. You were born where and when and to whom you were, and you didn't earn that. You were born on third base, but it doesn't save a single human soul. The fact that you have had access to Sunday school and vacation Bible school and church and Bible studies and discipleship groups. And summer camps and untold other parachurch ministries, not to mention a virtual infinite amount of resources on the internet. Those are all very, very good. But even armed with all that advantage, in an unredeemed state, we are all still slaves to a sin nature and bound to serve the wrong masters. And that makes us hypocrites. If we do all of this stuff outwardly, but it's not real, it is hypocrisy and God is blasphemed. Our lives become a walking around attempt to ungod God and he hates that. It's a bad witness and a bad testimony to the God that we claim to know. None of your, none of my pretense in any way guarantees that your sin has been taken away or that the righteousness that God requires exists within you. Your pretense does you no good. Number two, your procedure does you no good. This is Paul's whole passage. The first section is about pretense. second section is about procedure. The things we instinctively rely on or that we respond with when people ask us about our faith background are often merely symbols of the inward reality that may or may not have actually ever occurred. I go to church. Why? Because I'm supposed to. Because I have to. Because that's just what good people do. Versus, man, I go to church. Because I can't wait to gather with God's people, to feel the presence of the Spirit, to go through His Word It might look the same to two different people, but they're here for completely different reasons. One is guilty of ungodding God. The other here is because the fruit of the Spirit is taking root. All the difference in the world, and you and I can't tell from the outside. So it's not our job to go, you got to go, you can stay. No, 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 no. We proclaim the truth, but it's not about what you do. Listen, going to church when you were a kid, that's good. Getting baptized, praise God. Taking communion, yay. Church attendance, tithing, serving, absolutely. They're all really good things. And I hope they're springing out of a spirit doing work in your life. But if it's only ever begrudgingly done dutifully out of obligation, do you see what I'm doing here, God? Here I am again, I'm changing diapers. You better bless me for this. Ew, ew, ew. God never responds to that because it treats him transactionally like all other religions ever, and it seeks to ungod God. You're probably not thinking of it that way, so let this text teach us and convict us all of that. All of your religious resume is completely powerless to take away any of your sin or to receive the righteousness that God requires. It's never about what you do, but what has been done by somebody else. So, your pretense does you no good. Your procedure does you no good, point three. But there is a person who offers you his infinite good. Here's the gospel at the end of Romans chapter two. There is a person who offers you his good. This person freely offers to give us his good and to set us right with God, to enrightify us as it will. See, Jesus, Paul's gonna tell us all through the book of Romans, is true Israel, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, miraculously born of a virgin, who was, he will claim over and over again in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. I am the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 12. I am the blessing of all nations. Come, be found in Christ, and you are a true Jew. This risen Lord Jesus The Jewish Davidic king who will rule the earth for all time. If you know him and are known by him, then you, my friend, my brother or sister, are a true Jew. You are in Christ. That is your new identity. I'm looking at a whole bunch of Jews. That's my Israeli tour guide, Ronan. Ronan, Ben Moshe, Ronan, joyous son of Moses. Who is a true Jew? And he smiles and says, ah, a true Jew is someone who loves God and loves his word. And I said, Sir Ronan, I'm a Jew. And he smiles. He can't say it out loud, he works for the Israeli government. But he smiles. Yes. It's interesting that an Israeli Jewish person does not respond with some level of ethnicity or background, someone who loves God and loves his word. And I would contend that person is in Christ. Righteousness is not reached through a religious resume. Well, actually, it is. It's just not yours. It's his. See, this is why the gospel is so scandalous. The Messiah that the Jewish people were so eagerly awaiting wasn't at all what they expected. You see, Messiahs don't die, y'all. Messiahs come in on white horses. They conquer. They, they're, they're kingly. But this Messiah was shamed, beaten, naked, hanged on a cross, that's not supposed to happen, but what Paul wants us to understand, what the whole Bible wants us to understand, is that God loves us so much that He sent His Son to become Acrobustia. To be that which was bloodily cut off. Daniel 9 will say, Ephesians 2 will say, Galatians 3 will say, Revelation will say. He is the one who was cut off so that you and I would never have to experience that horrible, gruesome reality. The king and creator of the cosmos stepped out of glory, not just to die for your sins. Oh, 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 that would have been amazing. He became the gruesome and the grotesque. Curse that which was cut off the word he dared himself, so that you and I might actually experience the vertical relation as the people of God and be a light horizontally to the people and the nations of the world. <laughs> what is your faith background? What God demands of me, He gave me freely. What God hates in me, He took from me. That is my final answer. Let's pray. God, we thank You for who You are, for what You have done in Christ to redeem us to Yourself and to one another. We thank You, God, for Jesus. He was cut off. Fractured fellowship from You became a curse and a shame and a disgrace so that we would never have to experience that. And so we, God, we recognize that we have the opportunity now to choose at some level shame now. To yield and submit that we cannot accomplish the righteousness that you demand. And so we choose shame and we yield and submit and say, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I can't do this. Would you give? But if we choose shame now, then you give glory forever because your son took shame so that he would be glorified forever. So I pray, Father, this morning, if there are some in this room this morning who are still trying to build for themselves a righteous resume or a religious resume, That you will convict them through your spirit, through this text. And they will speak with someone they know and love and trust about how to receive the righteousness of Jesus and have him take all of their sin. For the rest of us, Father, who have been believers, but we have fallen into a rut of religious resume building. Thank you for grace. We're forgiven of that as well and that you would continue by your Spirit to produce fruit in us that looks like Bible study, that looks like church attendance, that looks like giving and serving and tithing and all those things. May it be legitimate, authentic fruit. May we, your people, go forth and not be guilty of ungodding you, but we would be the light of the world, reflecting your reign in this world. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us. We've made it through Romans chapter 2. I want to remind you, we've got Jamin here at the front. If there's anything you would like to be praying with, uh, have us praying with you about, please come and speak with Jamin about that. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. From the epistle from Peter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.